All right, like I said, uh, Hebrews 11, uh, first six verses, hopefully, if not the first four, we'll see. But um, we're just going to jump right into it here, since uh, we'll let Mark's prayer stand there. Um, Anyway, uh, back in chapter 10, we were warned again not to fall uh, away from persecution, not to shrink back. And he was really preparing us because it's about to talk about persecution that's going to be going on. And so um, that's the background here as we begin in chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it elders obtained a good testimony. And so the definition of faith here, ultimately that word substance is literally assurance. In other words, that we have assurance of things hoped for. Sometimes people think hope is something like, oh, I really hope this works out. It, may, it might not work out. That's not what this is talking about. We have absolute 100% assurance in the promises of God. And our hope is more of a a waiting um, anxiousness is what that's talking about. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so what we're really going to kind of look at here is the evidence of things seen versus not seen. If you look up, you know, uh, basically in the Cambridge Dictionary, they say seeing is believing. Uh, that's actually quite wrong. It's the opposite. Uh, today, the, the world basically sees things that, you know, it's governed, truth is governed by what we can see, what we can touch. In, in the evolutionary realm, we always hear people saying truth, the only thing that is truth is something that's empirical truth, something that you can apply your senses to. If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, it is not science, it's not truth, it's not provable. Well, how much does love weigh? You can't, you, you can't measure that empirically. There's so many things that evolutionists believe in, laws of science that are not empirically provable. And so this very statement is just absolutely false. And when it comes to Christianity, I'm telling you, it is not something that, you know, seeing is believing. Rather, believing is seeing. Quite the opposite. So anyway, uh, John 20, verse 25 says, The other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's doubting Thomas right there. And, you know, at the resurrection, Jesus showed himself to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And these are people that he's walked around with, these disciples, his friends. They have gone through thick and thin, and he won't even believe their word. Listen, we saw him, we know. Nope, I won't believe unless I see, unless I can touch. And so that just kind of shows you um, maybe one of the challenges that we might have here in life. Are we one of those doubting Thomases? That when we talk about the promises of God, it's like, well, no, I, and until it happens, especially when we look at kind of end time scenarios right now, you know, people are saying, well, I, I don't know, I, we listened to some podcast that Logan gave uh, Tara, I don't know which one it was, but anyway, uh, they were talking about the idea that 
So many pastors today are saying things like, oh, the Lord's not coming back. No, it don't, it's, everybody's been saying that forever. Don't worry. It's okay. Don't worry. It's like, don't worry? I'm not worried. I'm excited. This is what we've been hoping for. This is what we've been praying for. This is what Christians for centuries have been waiting for. And you're saying, don't worry? What is wrong with you? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, is that there are so many people who have this doctrine of the Lord's return in their head, but they don't have it in their heart. It's not faith and believing and saying, when the Lord comes back, He is coming for me, not against me. When He comes back, He's going to, you know, the, for example, we're going to see this later, but the, the saints in Revelation 5 when they're saying, how long, O Lord, until you come and avenge our blood? See, we've got a wrong mentality in our society about what's going on in the world right now. This should be exciting. Maybe it's not the end. Okay? It, it may not be. But we should live as if it is. Because that's where our hope, that's where the promises are all about. And we should be excited about that. Okay? So, yeah, John continues here in verse 26, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. I just wonder... If I was Thomas there, how ashamed I would have felt at that time, at that moment. Where, you know, he knows what I said, doesn't he? He knows what I said, because that's why he's asking me to do this. I mean, just the shame that would overcome me just because of that. And what is it? It's shame in unbelief. Well, verse 28 continues and says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God... That's the confession there. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here what we see is that nothing is going to keep you out of the kingdom of God more than unbelief. Belief is so vital, and this is why I love chapter 11. Because it's going to go to the very nuts and bolts of what belief is. And it's kind of where the rubber meets the road. It's almost like a litmus test of belief, you might say. Now the word blessed here, when it says blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, the Greek really expresses the context here, in, that the context is salvation. Not just, oh, you're going to have a great day. Okay? The context there is salvation for those who believe. So that's the nuts and bolts of Christianity is belief. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And guys, this is one of the problems I have with all of the business models that churches continue to chase after, follow up on, because we trust in the Bible and His Word. We don't make the church a business. We don't make the, the church a, a program. It doesn't become 
you know, a, a, a life insurance policy. That's not what church is. Church is all about Jesus and living life, living truth. That's what ch real church is, is really about. And I, I, well, I'll leave it at that. Numbers 13.30 says this. We're going to go and look at Caleb. And so we're going to stay in Numbers a little bit if you want to turn to Numbers. Um, we're going to see the promised land going into this promised land for the first time, uh, spying it out. And in verse 30 it says this, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. They gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So the spies are giving this bad report because they're scared. In other words, they don't have faith. We talked about this before when we were talking about picking up the shield of faith and how in Ephesians it says, above all else, it elevates that shield of faith above everything else. Faith is not a, a, a word we can look up in a dictionary. Faith is a state of our mind. It's a state of belief, believing. And it continues here in chapter 14 of Numbers. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Continues in verse 3, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? That our wives and children should become victims would it not be better for us to return to Egypt so that they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt? I think that this is very important. And again, with what we're going through in our world today with the, the concept of end times. Because I have had so many conversations with people saying, I know we should be excited, but when I think about my children my grandchildren, that they could be tortured, that they could be this or that or whatever. That is just like these spies that were sent out and saying, the Lord's coming back, he's given all these great promises, but there are giants in the land. And for us to get, now we've talked about this, that yeah, we can't expect to just waltz right into the promised land. I am not preaching a prosperity gospel here that says, hey, you're a Christian, God has made promises, so you won't have any problems in life. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, there are problems in life. The giants are there. But when you pick up that shield of faith, you are going to be able to go and face those giants. And you're going to have a mindset that you will be victorious. And so I keep saying, don't think about those things. That's the, the bad report of the spies trying to discourage you, trying for you not to want the Lord to come back. That's the devil right there. 
we live by faith in the promises. And so I'm going to live as if my kids aren't going to see any of those you know, problems, but if they do, my kids are going to have faith so that they're going to trust God's going to be there with them. And maybe they will be skinned alive, burned alive, hung upside down, and you know, thrown up into the sky. You know what? I'm confident because of God's grace and mercy that they're going to do it joyfully. I know that sounds stupid, but it's not stupid. Because this is exactly what we see throughout history that many Christians have done. They went to the stake, they were burned alive, they were boiled in oil, they were skinned alive, they were quartered. And this is about what we're going to read here in chapter 11. A real pick-me-up, you think. But it is because these people did it joyfully. I've used this example in, in other presentations, but you know when you're shooting a gun, you, you're supposed to make sure that the scope isn't you know, too close. You, you don't, you, sometimes people who don't know what they're doing with the guns, they put their face right up on the scope and it's like, oh boy, that would be fun to see. Because this thing is going to smack you, you're going to be you know, stitches. All right? I have seen people get stitches because they were too close. But do you know they never felt a thing? Never felt it. They just th they saw a deer out there, and then boom, you know, and then they think they're sweating or something, and then they, oh, no. What am I going to tell my friends? Because I can't let them know I did this. <laughs> the point being is, how do you walk up to somebody and cut them right in the head so hard that they need stitches, and they don't even feel it? And the answer is because your focus is out there, not here. Okay? I... I've seen it many times. I've, I've had it happen to myself many times where things, you know, how do you get, boy, I don't even know, right? When your focus is somewhere else. This is, I, I think, what I love about Hebrews, I, th I think it's chapter 12, we, we're not there yet, but it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame so that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on on Jesus. Don't glance at him here and there. Oh boy, yeah, I want Jesus coming back, but boy, you know, there's going to be a lot of giants that we're going to have to face, and this is going to be, no, 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 no. Get your eyes off of that back up there. You fix your eyes on him. That's faith. And so I am not going to say, hey, there won't be bad things that happen to you, but I can promise you this that during those bad times, God's grace will be so abundant and amazing that you will be able to, with joy, go through suffering and persecution because that is exactly what all the apostles and all these people we're about to read about did. How about Paul, or is it Peter? Acts chapter 12, we see that he is flogged. You know what flogging is. And he's brought into the prison cell. If it was me... I'd be in the corner whimpering and whining, crying, why, God, this Christianity is so hard. But no, that's not what happens. Instead, he says, come on, guys, let's gather around and let's sing some songs and praise God. He was either psychotic, he should have been up on the seventh floor of Mary Lanning, or he had faith and the grace of God was poured out on him 
in ways that only the word of God can describe. Nothing that makes sense to you, nothing that you can see, taste, smell, touch. It's spiritual. That's why I say it's not crazy. Anyway, <coughs> it's sad to me to think that their fear here in Numbers is so overwhelming that they prefer death or going back to slavery, what they hated all of these years, cried out to God to be delivered from just so that they didn't have to face their fears. Is that where we're at today? Oh, I hope the Lord doesn't come back yet. Now, I, I, I kind of wanted him to, but now that, you know, maybe I can see it on the horizon, eh, I don't want to go into the promised land. Basically, they start worrying about their kids. They start worrying about, you know, their food and how we're going to make it. And their response is, God hates us. He's brought us here to kill us. You ever have those thoughts? What did I do wrong? What did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Wrong thinking again. That's the devil. That's not how God operates. That he's just waiting for you to screw up so that he can stamp on your, your joy and take away and, and cause... That's not God. Okay, not at all. God doesn't hate you. He loves you if you're a believer. Remember Job. Uh, God says that, you know, to, to the devil, he says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan responds by, well, he only loves you because you give him all this stuff. He only loves you because you take care of him. You take that stuff away, oh, he'll curse you right away. So God says, go ahead, take his stuff. He takes his stuff and still doesn't curse him. Yeah, but he only loves you because you didn't let me touch him, his physical health. You let me do that, then he'll curse you. Well, Job's answer ultimately is, should we not also accept the bad as well as the good from God? And the problem is, is that when bad things happen, we can't look at it as God is punishing me, although sometimes we are disciplined, don't get me wrong. But I'm saying that it isn't because he hates you. It's just like I would discipline my own children because I love them and I'm trying to lead them to something that's going to be a blessing. But this is their attitude. God hates us. That's the devil. That's the, the spies there. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of, of hatred? No. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's the truth of God's love for us. If we lose everything, I can tell you this, it's for a good reason. If, if I am tortured and persecuted, I can tell you this, it's for a good reason. And that's where my faith lies. Not that I can't ever be tortured, but that if I am, he will be there for me and it's for a good reason, and I can have joy in that. And I believe he will be there to give you comfort. That's faith. Verse 6, But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. 
these men of faith are hearing all these lies and this disappointment and this, this oh, you know, we can't do it. And it, it troubles them so much that they tear their clothes. That's how we should be when we hear pastors telling you, oh, no, the end, don't worry about it. Okay? It ought to upset you. They spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Walking by faith, not sight. It continues, verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Do you trust God more than you fear the evil that's out here in this world? That's the question right there. Or do you, do you trust and fear the evil of the world more than you trust and fear God? So all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Notice God stepped in. These two were about to be stoned for standing up for God. And God steps in and it's almost like it's a side thought. It doesn't even really focus on it much. The glory just appears. Well, verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? See? There it is. It's belief. Faith. With all the signs which I have performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And that, you know, we've talked about before. I'm amazed. Here, if I was Moses, I'd have been, yes, Lord, thank you. Just wipe them out. I am so tired of this. But that's not what he does. He is, a, as a Christ figure, a Messiah figure, says, no, Lord, blot me out of the book first. And that's the thing that I have to put my spirit into check with even to this day all the time because I am so sick of stupidity in this country and in the churches today. And I need to have that attitude of, of Moses of, no, Lord, open their eyes, let them see. Okay, I, I don't know if I can say what Moses or Paul says yet, but, you know, blot me out. I could wish that I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own brothers. I... I don't, I'm not there. I want to be. But that's what this is going on here. Hebrews 3.18. Um, going back here just a little bit, just because it fits in. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. What I want you to catch here is this. Notice obedience and belief are connected together. You can't separate those two. What is belief or evidence of it? Living it out. Believing. Obeying. That's why these things are connected, because if you're not obeying, you really don't believe. You can be lying to yourself about it, but you don't believe. You don't believe those promises. You don't believe that the Word really is the Word of God, or else you would take it more seriously. But note that they are connected. 
I'll leave it at that. All right, so getting back here to our verses. Um, for by it the elders obtained good a good testimony, by this faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. I use this verse all the time in talking to people you know, that want me to prove that God exists to them by science. Even though I can give you tons of scientific, historical, archaeological support that God's word is true, I'll never convince you with any of those things. Because it is not by our senses that we believe, it is by faith. You have to say, all right, here's the word of God. Is it the word of God? Or is this just man's word or you know, just a good book or was he just a prophet? Whatever. Bottom line is, it comes down to belief, faith. And that's why, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm so bored with creation, and I, and I don't mean, I love the creation. I'm so bored of trying to convince people of creation. I have a creation ministry, but that bores me. But it's a necessary thing to open people's eyes at times. What excites me is talking about Jesus, talking about the hope we have in him, not trying to basically get this person to have an understanding so that they would believe. Yes, that's necessary. I'll drudge through it. But that's not my heart. Because I don't need to prove God to you. I, I don't remember who the guy's name is, but I, I loved how he put it this way. That if I'm needing to prove God exists to you, what I have just done is I have put God on trial. I have made you judge and jury. How dare you judge God? How dare you put him, you know, on trial? We're the ones on trial. That's right. And that is what we do when we feel like, oh, prove to me God exists. You can't. Because it's just like what I see in the creation ministry all the time. I can give you a scientific explanation to support the Bible and this or that or give you an answer about dinosaurs going on the ark. But it makes no difference because an evolutionist is going to come and they're going to come up with, yeah, but this. Or they're going to interpret the same evidence differently and give it to you. Like, you know, shark's teeth in Nebraska. I look at that, I see Noah's flood. They look at that and they say, nope, oceans used to be here. Oceans have been moving around. So the evidence is not going to convince anybody. It's what they already believe and have faith in that counts to begin with. Their presupposition, their goggles are looking at the world through, however you want to look at it. But anyway, um, here's where it starts to kind of change a little bit. These elders, he says, it speaks of those that are going to be in this great faith chapter. And uh, it's going to name a lot of them, and sometimes just by name, expecting you to know the story of what went on in their life. I want to show you the book of Sirach. And, you know, some people say, why do you bring up the, the, this you know, Enoch, why do you bring up this? I, I, just for those listening, I have to say this again. Why wouldn't I? Because, first of all, you bring up what Spurgeon said. You bring up what C.S. Lewis said to illustrate a point that the scriptures are saying. And if they illustrate that, 
and it, it, it helps you understand what scriptures are saying more, wonderful. Okay, now, the book of Sirach here, it's sometimes called the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus in Latin. It's, this book of Sirach is Greek, or it's called Ben Sirah of, in Hebrew. But let me give you some background. It was written in Aramaic. Um, this book was revered by the Jews in the days of Jesus. It was considered to be a holy book. Now, they did not necessarily have it in their canon, but it was considered a holy book. Not only that, uh, in Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and the scriptures and whatnot, they also found this uh, with it, um, and it was attached to the Psalms. They connected it with the, the Psalms. And so early Protestants, like Wycliffe, the Wycliffe Bible has this book in it, in the canonized scripture. We even see the original 1611 King James Version has this in the canonized scripture. Okay? And it is in the Apocrypha to this day. So, I'm not going to argue whether it's supposed to be in the canon or not supposed to be in the canon. What I'm going to do is, just like I would use it, C.S. Lewis or Spurgeon or anything else, it's going to help you understand what some of the scriptures are talking about here. It lines up, okay? But here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you come forward to serve the Lord, that would mean somebody who's going to be a believer, right? You might say, if you follow Jesus... Prepare yourself for temptation. Set your heart right and be steadfast and do not be hasty in time of calamity. Cleave to him and do not depart that you may be honored at the end of your life. Interesting, isn't it? It's almost like before you build a house, consider the cost. He says, if anybody's going to follow truth, follow Jesus, follow the Lord, you will be tempted. You're going to have problems. That lines up with scripture. But he says, set your heart right, meaning focus. Fix your eyes. Don't be hasty in a time of calamity. When the troubles come, cleave to him. Who's him? The Lord. Cleave to the Lord and do not depart, that you may be honored at the end of your life. Now that's important, that you may be honored, because look here what it's saying about these people. The elders obtained a good testimony. And you're going to see in verse 4 when we get to that, that it even says that they still speak to this day. And so when it says that they will be honored at the end of your life, you want to leave a legacy? Your, a, a true legacy is going to be how you live your life for Christ. That's a true legacy. Not how big your house is or how many cars or boats you had. It goes on here in verse 4. Accept whatever is brought upon you, and in changes that humble you, be patient. For gold is tested in the fire, and acceptable men in the furnace of humiliation. Trust in him, and he will help you make your ways straight, and hope in him. Kind of almost sounds like he's drawing from the book of Job there. Okay, um, 
I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in Sirach here to chapter 44, verse 1. It says, Let us now praise famous men and our fathers and their generations. The Lord apportioned to them great glory. This is just a perfect setup for what we're about to read in chapter 11 here. His majesty from the beginning. There were those who ruled in their kingdoms, were men renowned for their power, giving counsel by their understanding and proclaiming prophecies, leaders of the people in their deliberations and in understanding of learning for the people, wise in their words of instruction. Verse 14, their bodies were buried in peace and their names lives, name lives to all generations. People will declare their wisdom and the congregation proclaim their praise. Well, here's what Hebrews 11 verse 4 says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying to his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. That's exactly what Sirach is talking about. Guys, you live your life for the Lord... Being dead, your life will continue to speak to generation upon generation upon generation. And I think that there's a lot of ways that we could look at this. I don't have this up here, but in my godly family presentation, I compare, and I don't even remember where it comes from, but somebody took two people. One was a murderer, and then one was a missionary or something like that and they followed their lines through like 300 years. And the murderer, you, you talk about how sins basically are passed on to the third and fourth generation type thing. It, it was filled with other murderers, things that cost the state all kinds of money because of others going to jail and, and uh, just one awful thing after another. The missionary, on the other hand, had like two presidents in his line. He had, you know, all these people who were a benefit to society, all these missionaries, um, just wonderful things that were going on. So not only does your name, your, you know, Mark, going to live on forever, but Mark's children, because of who Mark was as a father, that name continues to bear fruit and be a witness. And that's kind of what we're seeing here in, in Hebrews 11. It isn't just about, oh, persecution. And that's how a lot of people tend to read chapter 11. That's not it. This is one of these things we strive for because we want a legacy. We want our life to be a testimony even after I'm dead. A testimony to God. Not a testimony of what a nice person I was, or, you know, he invented this, or he was, spoke on creation, or whatever. But rather, man, he loved God. This is what he said about God's word. Whatever. You get the point. So, being still dead, being dead still speaks. I, I love that phrase. It goes on here, and here's what I find interesting about the book of Sirach. In that same chapter now, it says, look at, I, I'm not going to read it all, but look at the names. Enoch, please the Lord. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Look at here. Here's the list of those in Hebrews compared to the book of Sirach or Ben Sirah in Hebrew. Enoch, Noah, basically Joseph and Abel are, are listed in, in Hebrews, but they're not in Sirach. 
almost identical. So anyway, um, I don't know if Hebrews borrowed from this, but I can tell you this, that the author would have had this in mind. Because the author in the time of Hebrews, this is a time when they know, uh, this is a time of Nero, persecution is happening, and he is trying to, he's pumping people up. He's saying, come on guys, now is the time. It's that going through the tunnel as the huskers are about to come out. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to set up. All right, remember Enoch. Okay, you remember Abel. Come on, remember these guys because this is what we need to be right now, guys. It is pumping you up, not trying to scare you about being persecuted. That's what we're going to be in here in chapter 11. He was trying to empower them. Now, I want to look at one more text here that these people would have been well aware of, and that is in the book of Maccabees. 1 Maccabees 2.49. Now, Maccabees is writing about the time of Antiochus IV, or also known as Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 B.C., this is basically during the time of Hanukkah what is being celebrated because it is a picture, a foreshadowing of the Antichrist and end times and the Lord's return. All right? But it says, Now the days drew near for Mattathias to die. And he said to his sons, Arrogance and reproach have now become strong. The world's falling apart. It is a time of ruin and furious anger. In other words, we should be upset about the evils going on. Now, my children, show zeal. Pump them up. Show zeal for the law. You'd give your lives for uh, the covenant of our fathers. Remember the deeds of the fathers, which they did in their generations and received great honor in an everlasting name. This is what Hebrews is saying. This is what Sirach was saying. So... When evil is running rampant, we shouldn't just be living life and go, oh, well, let's just go live life and I'm just going to stay in my little nook and cranny. We should be righteously angered by what's going on in this country and in the church right now. That's what he's saying here as well. Well, one of this guy's kids, Mattathias' kids, was named Judah Maccabee. And Judah the Hammer, he was called. And he basically did get an everlasting name because he stood up for truth. In chapter 2, verse 52, he says, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested? It was, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Joseph, in the time of his distress, kept the commandment and became Lord of Egypt. Phineas, our father, because he was deeply zealous, received the covenant of everlasting priesthood. Joshua, because he fulfilled the command, became a judge in Israel. Caleb, because he testified in the assembly. David, because he was merciful, inherited. Elijah, because of a great zeal for the law. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, believed and were saved from the flame. Because of his innocence. was see, Just going through. This is a message of a father to children who are about to be persecuted. And he's saying, remember these fathers because their names live on. Find strength in that and find strength in your Lord. 
So observe from generation to generation that none who put their trust in him will lack strength. See, he's not saying, listen, you want to be famous? Then go do this. He's saying, these people are famous not because they wanted to be famous, but because they put their trust in God. They realized not, and by the way, the whole thing of Judah the hammer, their whole, uh, I hate to use the word mantra, but uh, kind of banner thing to stand under is not by my might or strength, but by the strength of God. I'm, I'm screwing it up at Zechariah, but not by my might. So quoting Zechariah. So these people are not putting their trust in them or, or have a goal of becoming famous. Their goal is of eyes fixed on God and truth. Okay? The result of it is being famous. Do not fear the words of a sinner, for his splendor will turn into the dung and worms. Today he will be exalted, but tomorrow he will not be found, because he has returned to the dust, and his plans will perish. My children, be courageous and grow strong in the law, for by it you will gain honor. Basically, grow strong in the word. By that, you will gain honor. So, in other words, what this father is doing is he's saying, kids, prepare for war. Get ready for battle. That's what these first four verses of Hebrews are trying to tell you. And all the more as what we see going on in the world today. Get ready for battle. So, this is being said in a time of persecution for Antiochus. Hebrews is saying it in a time of persecution of Nero. I might be saying it now, quoting Hebrews, in preparation for a time of great struggles upon the church that could be coming now. Now we can just ignore it or we can like get ready and get hyped up and prepare for battle. I can tell you this, you go hide in the corner when it happens, yeah, it's going to be tough. But you get hyped up and prepared for battle, I think you're going to experience the grace of God in ways that you've never even imagined in ways that you have a peace that surpasses all human understanding. So that's what it is trying to do here. We're going to continue here in verse 4, <clears throat> a little bit other details of it. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. I'm going to go through this kind of quickly, but to, going back to Genesis, we need to see what this was kind of all about. Um, it says, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Well, going back to Genesis 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing here outside of, I want you to see a couple of things. I don't want you to define either one of these men by their occupation. Some people have said, you know, well, Abel, he was righteous. He, he basically had flocks, you know, living things that could be sacrificed. And Cain, he was this man of the field and, and plants and not, not able to give living. No, 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 no. 
Okay, Noah was a man of the soil too. There's lots of people. So don't identify these people by their occupation. <coughs> Rather, I think that there's a picture here of Christ. When you look at Abel, Abel was a shepherd. A shepherd who is going to be killed by the evil one. Remember, God even warned Cain. He says, you know, basically... Sin desires to have you. It's crouching at the door, just like, you know, other terminology that's used for the devil. He's saying the devil is crouching right there, and it desires to have you. And this is kind of a, a Christ figure in some small way that you might say that our shepherd, that's what the devil was going after him as well. Going to be killed by the evil one in a sense, even though we know that Jesus gave his own life that kind of thing. But anyway, um, verse 4, he says, that Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So Abel, side note here, brings the firstborn and the fat. It's a good thing. This is exactly what God commanded later in the book of Leviticus. So, by the way, they had some understanding of some of these Levitical laws before Levitical laws were even in existence. Um, my kids and I were talking a little bit about that this week as far as how do you know what to do, what you don't. What, what's, what's null and void, what's not? And the church has done a good job of saying, well, there's, there's civil and there's this, you know, civil and moral laws and blah, blah, blah. I, I don't really buy into that. But bottom line is this. I don't understand. I can't give you an answer for everything, but I can tell you that what I do... It was already being done even before Moses and the Levitical law. They were not eating blood. There was a distinction between clean and unclean, right? The Sabbath was already there. It just wasn't in the commandments. There's uh, the same thing that the book of Acts in chapter you know, uh, 19 and 21 and 15, the same things that are given there were around even before Leviticus. So I'll just leave it at that for now. But um, Cain's offering here is not accepted. I don't think it's because of what he offered as much as the manner in which it was offered, the lack of faith or a heart issue, that he was kind of bringing, you might say, leftovers rather than the first fruit, but the leftover. Now, I'm going to show you why this is. Um, but it's kind of like the, the parable of the bridegroom, the ten virgins. Five are waiting and ready, and five are just, yeah, kind of lackadaisical about it all. You could just say, Cain, yeah, kind of lackadaisical, but Abel was ready and, and prepared to bring the best. <coughs> so here's some Jewish commentary on this topic, on these verses of Genesis 4. It says, And Cain brought from the fruit of the land an offering, a mincha, it's called, to God. From the leftovers, the evil tenant that eats the first fruits and gives to the owner of the field that stunted ones. And Abel brought also he from the firstborn of his sheep and their fat. So in other words, the rabbis, whether they're right or not, I don't know, but what they say is their understanding, which is you know, 3,000 years closer to it than we are, was that Abel brought the best and Cain was bringing leftovers. 
in the Septuagint, it may support the fact that these, this commentary is correct. Now, what is the Septuagint? Again, it is the Greek translation of the Bible. As a matter of fact, most of Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint when it's quoting the Old Testament. One out of every two scripture verses quoted in the New Testament, quoting the Old, is from the Septuagint. So the Septuagint was held in high regard by Jesus, by the disciples, by everybody back then. All right, so this is scripture, 100%. And here's what he says, The Lord said to Cain, this is just the Septuagint of this verse, To what end have you become deeply grieved, and to what end has the face fallen? Have you not sinned if you offer rightly, but do not divide rightly? So, in other words, he didn't divide rightly or split it up properly that there was some, something wrong with it. Not what it was, but the mindset and heart of which it was being given. A faith problem. Verse 6 um, kind of reminds you of Acts chapter 10, verse 34, when Cornelius is accepted. Peter says, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. This is what God told Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? But you should rule over this desire. The sin desires to have you, but rule over it. Do what's right. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and he killed him. 1 John 3.11 says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Cain blamed Abel not because of what he gave or any of that, but because Abel was righteous. He was godly, and that made him bad. That pricked his conscience. And we've talked about this before, but look at Proverbs 29, verse 27. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. And he who is upright in the way, or righteous, is an abomination to the wicked. I can tell you this. You guys start following God. You obey him, keep his commandments. I can promise you you will be hated. Oh, who does he think he is? Oh, he thinks he's righteous. You know, he thinks he's holier than thou. Ezekiel 43.10, uh, I preached on this a couple of years back, and I talked about the Son of Man. It says, describe the temple to the people or to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. And I asked, one of the purposes of the temple of God, when I ask you what's the purpose of the temple, everybody thinks, oh, to make sacrifices. But there was another purpose, okay? a, uh, a lot of purposes. It's a model of heaven, and also it was to show them their sin. Show them the tabernacle. Now remember what we've been talking about here in Hebrews. What is the tabernacle now, or the temple? You. In other words, show the people your temple so that they may be ashamed of their sins. Tell you what, if you don't do drugs, 
The drug dealers think that you're crazy, stupid, they're going to hate you. You're a Christian and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm deciding I'm not going to drink. Okay, regardless of what you think, whether it's okay or not okay. You just make it as your decision to not drink at all. You're going to have people think, oh, who does he think he is? Right? When we live righteously, the Bible says you can count on it, that you will be hated. And that is what uh, John is telling us is why Cain hated Abel. Cain had something wrong in his heart. It wasn't about what he was offering. It was about who he was. And he was convicted and his spirit was, was pricked. His conscience was pricked just by being in the presence of that godliness. So it's a good thing. You are never, never going to get along with the wicked. We're supposed to be united as a church, but you are not supposed to be united with the world. And one of the podcasts that Logan had sent that I listened to this week that was really good too talks about, of all, what, what group is that that Cooper's in? Skillet. Skillet. Okay, I'm not a hard, heavy metal rock kind of fan. And honestly, my judgmental attitude, I look at somebody who's probably, you know, uh, uh, one of the main guys in, in this rock skillet group, I am not going to expect him to have a theological bone in his body, probably. Yes. It, he was spot on, more so than many theologians of today. And one of the things that he kept talking about is the church becoming relevant. That all of these preachers are trying to become relevant. And talking about Black Lives Matter and all of these kinds of things. The you know, critical race theory or, or hashtag me too. Or whatever. Every few years there's another thing that comes about. Because the church is trying to be relevant. And in doing so they're selling out truth. I've been preaching against this kind of stuff for years and maybe saying it in different ways, but I think that people are just lazy. We're too busy watching TV to rather than searching out what truth is. You know, I've been saying for years the danger of the, the repetitive worship kind of thing that's been going on. Why? Because I know where it came from. It came from New Age and it crept into the church. And it's that whole mantra in emptying the mind, and that's how people in the church, really what they try to do, is if you can just say, you know, Jesus, 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 80,000 times in a song, or say the same verse 15 times, you're really not thinking and processing in the mind, it's just like a mantra. What's the point of a mantra? To empty the mind so that a spirit can come in. So the church simply tried to Christianize that philosophy and say, we don't need to think about truthful words, but we want to just empty our minds and wait for that warm fuzzy to feel the spirit coming in. And now we've you know, got the Holy Spirit, we hope. Verse 7 of Revelation 13 says this, 
He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name as tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and language. This is just like Cain. Cain was given permission to kill Abel. The Antichrist is going to be, or going to give, be given permission to go after the, the saints. Haman was given permission to go after the Jews. But we need to remember why. In the end, it's ultimately for the demise of the wicked and the blessing of the righteous. God knows what he's doing. It goes on, though, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He, uh, is he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So here in Revelation, it's talking about all this persecution that's going on, and it's saying, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. It's connecting faith to that persecution. And by the way, the devil goes after those who keep the commandments of God. Why? Why does the devil care so much? Because he knows those who keep the commandments of God, they're the ones, that's who he wants. That's the cream of the crop. So, um, going back here to Genesis 4 and 9, what we see is that when Abel is killed... God comes to Cain, and in verse 10, he says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You look at Revelation 6, and we see those saints who have been killed by the, because of the testimony of Jesus. What happens? Their blood cries out to God. It says, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So I find that connection interesting. Um, the rabbis say that the day Cain killed Abel was the day Cain died and Abel lived. Enoch, the book of Enoch, same thing kind of as these others that I said before, says this, then I inquired of Raphael, an angel who was with me, and said, Whose spirit is that, the voice of which reaches to heaven and accuses? He answered, saying, This is the spirit of Abel, who was slain by Cain, his brother, and who will accuse that brother until his seed be destroyed from the face of the earth, until his seed perish from the seeds of the human race. So just like those saints who had been killed are at the altar of God saying, how long until you avenge our blood? That's kind of what we see even with the blood of Abel is saying, how long until you avenge my blood? Proverbs 16.8, the sacrifice of the wicked, like Cain as an example, is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright, like Abel, is his delight. So I'm hoping that this kind of puts a little different or maybe puts life to these verses here uh, in Hebrews. Um, verse 5 and 6, I'm going to go through really fast. I don't have as much to talk about with them, but uh, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had his testimony that he pleased God, but without faith... It's impossible 
to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Enoch basically is an example, but it says it's, it's possible to please God through our faith, especially when it expresses itself in action. With Abraham, Enoch, the same thing here. <coughs> it says he was not found because God had taken him. I'm not going to get into too much with him outside of that sometimes a lot of people will kind of take that as a picture of an end time thing that God will take us um, and, and spare us from some of the evils. I'm going to not give you the Targum and whatnot that deals with Enoch. So that wasn't necessarily like Elijah? Well, no. Uh, Enoch was kind of a pre-flood example. I think at 165 years, he walked with God and then was no more. God just took him. And so I, I'll just read real quick what uh, the Targum Jonathan says, talks of Enoch. Now, the Targum, what's the Targum? It's the Aramaic paraphrase here of the scriptures all right and it says Enoch served in the truth before the Lord and behold he was not with the sojourners of the earth for he was withdrawn and he ascended to the firmament by the word before the Lord what I love about this is Targum Jonathan almost always will take and personify the word to Jesus the word is Jesus all the time, like God, in essence. And it says the firmament by the word. So what, what caused Enoch to be taken? The word. The word took him. The word is God. Um, the Septuagint says this of Genesis 5.22. Enoch was well pleased to God after his begetting Methuselah 200 years and he begat sons and daughters and all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 so 365 and Enoch was well pleasing to God and was not found because God translated him that word translated is literally the word in Greek uh, changed when we read in 1 Corinthians 15 about we will all be changed in a flash in a twinkling of an eye that so that God changed him, took him in that sense. So I just kind of find that interesting as well. And then the last one here, uh, Sirach 44.1, Enoch pleased the Lord and was taken up, an example of repentance to all generations. So our Bible simply says that he was taken up. But here it says that he was taken up as an example of repentance. In other words, it shows the power of repentance. If we repent, you'll be changed. Okay, that basically is it. So